The Mayfly is up and the excitement is palpable. Wherever you are in Ireland, the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with Mayfly soon. And to help you improve your catch rate this season, we've used a Mayfly Tactics Masterclass with international angler, guide and renowned tire, Jackie Mann. If you want to learn about setup, tactics, conditions and flies, then head over to www.irelandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass where you can find out all the details to access the recording and Jackie's notes. If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you. You're listening to a bonus episode from Ireland on the Fly, the podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. Sunday, June 5th was World Environment Day, and to celebrate and raise awareness of the campaign, the IFI's National Fisheries Habitat Development Manager, Declan Cook, gave a webinar on habit restoration in Irish rivers. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us today. What I'd like to go through with you is uh, IFI's methods for habitat restoration on Irish rivers. Uh, this process goes back a long way to the time of Martin O'Grady back in the 90s. Uh, and what I'll be dealing with really is our take on it, what we're doing nowadays um, in terms of river habitat restoration. And I'd draw your attention initially to this quote that I got from Shields uh, back in 2003. Uh, river habitat restoration is the return of a degraded stream ecosystem to a close approximation of its remaining natural potential. In other words, we don't really expect to return a river to exactly the way it was before human intervention. Um, we, we won't really be in a position to do that. And I'll explain all the reasons for that through the presentation. But what we're trying to do is help rivers restore themselves within the constraints of the modern landscape, if you like. And this picture I've chosen on the left is, uh, it's, it's a channel that we did some work on back in the late 1990s. Um, we put in various structures that you can't even see today. Uh, there are still remnants of them there. This is a V-notch weir that was put in. Um, and some of the material we use to build structures has actually been dispersed downstream and is now functioning as part of the ecosystem in its own right. So even though some of the material that was put in is not actually there in the form that it was originally intended, it's still part of the ecosystem and it's helping to create local scour and uh, you know uh, develop little pockets of habitat throughout the river channel. You can see that even though this river looks reasonably natural, it has been modified in the past. You can see how deeply incised it is when you look at the surrounding level, the, the level of the, the surrounding land. But uh, the riparian area has been allowed to revegetate. A, you know, there's a quite a thick uh, sward of, of flowering and plants and grasses. There's also some trees providing dappled shade here and there. So even though um, the, the river doesn't look exactly like it did when we went in and did the, the development or the restoration scheme. It is still functioning in the way you hoped it would, possibly even better, because we reintroduced those materials and because the river has had some uh, 
heterogeneity reintroduced into its habitat. So to understand why and what we're doing, it's useful to consider how we have used our rivers up to now and what's happened to them since they were in their original state. And um, we've, we've impounded them mainly as to, to create water supplies for growing human populations, but also sometimes in some instances to produce uh, electricity, hydroelectricity. Um, most of the rivers here in Ireland and indeed all over Europe, uh, uh, they, 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 most of their catchments lie within agricultural landscapes. And we've used the rivers to help us in our development of um, agriculture as we see it today. Um, unfortunately, rivers have often been used as a means of disposing of our waste, both, both our, our human biological waste and the sort of refuse that we produce as part of our day-to-day -day living. Uh, thankfully, that's not as big an issue now, but I'm sure any of you who have ever been on river cleanups, for example, you will have seen this type of, uh, you know, dumping and, 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 and people casually using rivers as a way of getting rid of waste. But from the point of view of, of IFI, probably the most important use we need to consider is Ireland being such a wet country. Uh, rivers have always been regarded as the best way to get rid of water. So water accumulates on lands, usually agricultural lands, and there's always been an imperative in Ireland to get rid of this water as quickly and efficiently as possible because there's a surfeit of it really. And so we've drained, we've straightened, we've deepened our river channels, and we've essentially taken out anything in those river channels that cause friction, that will delay the conveyance of that water from the land. And that's what's really resulted in probably 80% of our rivers being degraded badly in a, in a hydrological sense. And um, part of our remit um, in, under the Water Framework Directive is to, to restore uh, this sort of good ecological status, at least good ecological status. And in the third cycle, um, hydromorphology, as in the shape of the river, how it physically performs, has become a consideration. So now, in, not only do we need to manage water quality, but we also need to start restoring and uh, allowing habitat, river habitats to recover so that they don't uh, lose, lose out in terms of hydromorphology, that, that, that we, can, we can score them high enough in terms of their habitat quality so that they will achieve good ecological status. So the outcomes from that abuse, well, overall, it's been a sort of a, a loss in biodiversity. And again, you can see in this picture, a lot of the normal natural material that you would find in, in a, a river that has a sufficient amount of energy as this one does, uh, you know, the boulders, the cobbles, the gravels, even the sort of bankside, the vegetation, you know, the, the mix of, of plant species that we would expect to see, they've all been removed to allow for this river to sort of convey the maximum amount of water at all times. So we've, we've lost the ecosystem services that we normally would expect rivers to deliver for both for other plants and animals and for you know, society generally. There's been a very obvious loss in fisheries productivity. You know, a lot of these catchments that would formerly have been highly productive salmonid fisheries uh, have now sort of lost much of that productivity and they're now really only surviving on, on, a, on a relatively uh, considerably reduced stocks. So that, that then, um, you know, confers an, a loss of amenity to, you know, local people. But 
I suppose the question that we're often asked is, can they recover? If we just fence them off and walk away, can we assume that they will recover their ecological status? Well, the answer to that, as far as I can best assess, is they can partially. It depends. It's not a simple yes or no answer. If a river has sufficient time and energy, but also it has a source of appropriate substrates, then yes, probably it can recover to something reasonably approximating its natural state. state. But if it has no source of substrate, as in the gravels and the cobbles and stone, if it's being cut in a way that doesn't allow it to erode and, and deliver or recruit those kind of uh, materials into the river, then probably it can't. And that's where we start to consider that intervention is often required. So I'll take you through what types of interventions and what uh, instances we decide that, you know, these interventions are necessary. And I just sort of leave this slide, slide with a quote that I found in, in a book by Mary Kelly Quinn and Julian Reynolds. Um, I'm sure many of you will already know this, but freshwaters are experiencing species extinctions at a rate faster than any other ecosystem globally. So really now is the time to start intervening, to start allowing our rivers to recover, not just our rivers, but all wetlands. Um, but it, it, it starts here with this type of intervention, I believe. So rivers themselves, they're very dynamic ecosystems within the landscape. They're supposed to, because of their physical nature, the energy that, that's comprised in moving water, they are constantly shifting and depositing and eroding within the landscape. So they have a floodplain and they can very often move considerably within that floodplain, taking materials with them, depositing those materials in different places. And once we start to try and constrain those rivers, first of all, we lose the biodiversity inherent in river systems, but also we've disrupted a physical process and that has consequences downstream. You can't straighten and constrain a river without allowing for the fact that problems will occur. There will be increased erosion or increased flooding downstream. So once we start to modify our rivers, that's when they start to sort of become problematic in the landscape, if you like, from a human point of view. And most restoration that we are looking at nowadays, they're constrained because we've built in those floodplains now. We've, we've, we've modified the rivers and then we've moved in to what was the original floodplain. And we're now sort of uh, dealing with a river that's not behaving in a natural way, but we're trying to force it more and more to behave in a way that suits our development. So within those constraints, that's where we're coming from in terms of how we go about repairing and restoring river habitats. It's within a modified channel that we have to do our work and deliver what, what we consider to be the best sort of compromise, I suppose, in terms of uh, habitat recovery. Um, so we have restoration in urban landscapes, as you can see here in the top right, um, we're very constrained in those because if we do anything that, that could be even perceived as causing a flooding problem within an urban landscape, well then there's a, there's a very obvious loss of property and loss of, sort of econ economy, I suppose, uh, within these landscapes. And But, but mo most often what we're dealing with is rivers that have been modified to enhance intensive agriculture 
Um, so we're working in agricultural landscapes and we have a little bit more to play with in terms of our land take, in terms of what we can agree with landowners to allow the river to sort of be worked on and then recover its, its own um, habitat within the constraints of the agricultural landscape that it's moving. So as I said earlier, um, the principal source of damage that we tend to deal with in the vast majority of our projects is range to allow for maximum water conveyance is the removal of substrate. And so when substrates are removed, removes any friction or any delay in the water escaping. And often we find that the bed of the river uh, is lowered in relation to the surrounding landscape. This for, allows for outfall, water flowing from the land and it can be taken away quickly. And um, the removal of riparian vegetation, again, to allow for that outfall and maximum conveyance within the river channel. Uh, obviously the result of this is habitat loss and the loss of biodiversity generally. I've, I've, I've circled uh, and, and highlighted a couple of parts of this image in red just to show how quickly a river will, I mean, even though we've modified highly this river, um, the river process itself will start straight away depositing in areas where the water is a bit slack and you know, throwing the river out and around uh, uh, obstacles that it, 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 it creates itself, I suppose, within that. So again, you know, you have that uh, prospect of the river recovering if it's left alone for long enough. But the, the, the red here is the fact that this river has not been fenced means that it, it, it's, it's in direct contact with the, the surrounding landscape. This will probably end up causing erosion on that bank which will then probably be followed up by some sort of rock arm, as you can see down here. And you, you can see how if this, if, if we don't have a sort of habitat restoration type intervention in a scenario like this, the river will be modified and remodified and remodified because it just doesn't seem to fit in the landscape that, that uh, humans are trying to create around it. So I just have a quick slide here on natural regeneration. What can we expect from a river if we just walk away and leave it alone? Don't intervene. And you can see in the top left here, there is a, a, a reasonably, it's, it's not as highly modified as some of the images you've been looking at up to now, but uh, it has very free access for cattle in and out of the river. They're tramping the river bed, they're eating a lot of the vegetation as it emerges, and the river is never really going to sort of establish those natural processes if this is allowed to continue. But a year or so after this image was taken, you can see that there's the river once the cattle have been removed. It's not in the worst shape you could possibly imagine, but it's worth taking note. This is, you can probably see the single strand of electric fence that, that was put in along both banks. So cattle no longer have access. And a year later, you can see there's almost a pattern to how the vegetation is recovering. And this is starting to introduce a meander into the river. The meander will introduce scour in different parts of the cross section, and you will get what we refer to as a thalweg, which is this sort of deep section within the river where the maximum amount of water is flowing. And if we allow for this to happen for long enough, the root systems and stems of these 
plant beds will start to attract sediment. And that sediment will become more solid over time and the river will develop its own really pr profound meander, which will be very helpful in terms of, th this is allowing the physical processes of a river to let habitat establish itself. And I believe there's a lot of rivers out there where this would happen naturally if we just fence them off and leave them alone. But what we must remember is there's no point in fencing off this river and leaving it unless we can allow enough land on either side for the river to meander into and create its, its own path. Uh, if we try and constrain the river, as we have done up to now in, in, in so many different um, instances, the river will just eat into the, the, the agricultural land around it. So we need to allow what we call an aquatic buffer zone um, so that the river can meander away and do its own thing within the land that we allow for it. So I asked the question in the previous slide, sorry, I didn't refer to it there, but what, where, where are the instances where we really should or have to intervene if we're to allow, if, we're, if we can expect the river to become something that approximates its natural state. And in some cases, like the previous slide, we can maybe just fence it off and walk away and allow for it to, to do that itself. But in other instances, particularly where the river has been deeply incised or straightened, we're removing a, an essential part of the river process that causes this erosion and leads to gravel recruitment. Gravel, I, I use that term loosely, gravel recruitment really can refer to any kind of natural bed material that you would expect to see in a river. You can see here the river is eroding away at a bank, which most landowners don't want to see. But there's an essential line of alluvium. This is the gravel and stone that would have been probably laid down during the last glacial period or, or a post-glacial period. And once we, once we remove the river from that source of gravel recruitment, then we're in a situation where the river won't really be able to recover to anything approximating its natural state. So in instances like that, where there is no source of gravel in a reach of river, we usually reintroduce the gravel itself. Now, hopefully we can source that gravel from somewhere very nearby. So it's the same type of gravel uh, that would naturally be found in that particular watercourse. Um, so you can see in, in the picture below, there's a river that's been artificially straightened, I suppose. It's been cut below, it's quite deeply incised, so it's been cut below the line of alluvium where that gravel source is. And we feel the need here to intervene by reintroducing that material that it no longer has access to. Also, it's probably worth making the point that when we consider the other species, not just fish, that are, are, are part of this ecosystem, they all benefit from uh, you know, the substrate that would naturally be there. And I'll talk about that a little bit more as we go forward. The other way we've modified, uh, if you cast your mind back to the second slide, the other way we've modified in, in, in a very profound sense our water courses is we've impounded them. We've created weirs, barriers, bridges, all sorts of things that really, that the river can never recover to its natural state unless we address these. These are man-made structures put into the river 
that are affecting ecological continuity. That is the free movement of species up and down the watercourse in a way that, that they would naturally do. So one of the key factors in deciding whether or not we will carry out a, 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 a restoration programme or indeed whether the restoration programme itself has to include a, a, an element of barrier removal uh, will be the nature of a barrier, whereabouts in the catchment it is, uh, what, how, how much of a barrier it is. Is it a partial barrier, uh, as in this, this badly constructed bridge, or is it a complete barrier like this weir that was uh, built? Um, so one of the ways we can address that is by removing the barrier entirely, although that's, uh, that's usually fraught with all sorts of problems because, you know, certain developments become established along river banks on the basis of a barrier that may have been constructed several hundred years ago. And if we remove that, we remove a lot of the functionality of those developments. But also, um, you know, if, if we are to leave the barrier as it is, what is the most appropriate way to make uh, access to the various species that need it up and down the river corridor? So we can we can introduce fish passes, but they don't always work for all the species that we're concerned with. Um, but we, we can also design fish passes that do cater for a variety of different species. So we need to decide what the best fit option is in each case on a case by case basis. Um, but the, the ultimate goal is to restore that continuity in an ecological sense for species up and down the river. So when we are considering whether or not we will carry out a restoration plan and if the plan is necessary and if it's desirable, we'll consider a number of different uh, issues. Um, the first one is that the channel has to be highly modified, has to be damaged in some way. We're not trying to do better than nature itself. So really we're trying to redress damage that was done by humans. And it starts with the RBD field staff, the people on the ground, the fishery officers um, and development officers that would be in, in, in regular contact with these streams and rivers. They'd be observing fish, they'd be often carrying out fish surveys, and they would have a very good understanding of what the context of each watercourse is within the wider catchment. So they would carry out a routine survey. Um, and this is where we, we sort of introduced the, it, it, well, it's, it's abbreviated RAP, but it's the River Habitat Assessment Technique. And it's, it's a sort of a, an agreed technique um, that's recognized on a European-wide scale. And it assesses, you know, how much hydrological damage has been done in a river. But essentially what it's a measure of is how far has a given river been removed from its natural state? How far has it departed? And that takes into account the riparian area, the, the land use in the immediate vicinity of the channel, the structure of the river in, 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 its, in, in its own channel, um, the, the condition of the substrate, the condition of the water, uh, you know, the quality of the water. Uh, all those things are taken into account and they're scored. And we, we then have a, a score that we can sort of assign to each reach in each river and decide on the basis of that score how appropriate it is for us to intervene or how necessary it is for us to intervene with a restoration proposal or project. And um, we'd also 
do a certain amount of searching on our own databases to find out historically what fish stocks might have been in this river. How do they compare to the current fish stocks? And if there is some sort of habitat restoration we can bring about that would cause an improvement in those fish stocks. So the role really is to assess and recommend based on what we find during the rat, the, the rat surveys. So as I said before, we also fall back on you know, historical fish surveys, water quality surveys, but there are also other considerations. It's not just about the fish. We need to consider, is this channel within an SAC? And if so, what other species and what other habitats are important in this particular area? It's a protected site. It's obviously protected for some reason. And we need to very carefully consider what those reasons are, what those species and habitats are. We also need to consider if there are invasive species in the area, we have to be very careful that any work we do doesn't cause the spread or prolif further proliferation of invasive species. And once we've considered all that, we can then recommend a series of measures that we would hope will bring about uh, ecological restoration, at least to some degree. And you can see here, I've, I've sort of chosen these two very contrasting pictures. This river here has enough energy so that structures put into this river would allow for, for it to sort of start to scour in different directions and create a more heterogene heterogeneous habitat. It's also very bare along its banks. We would obviously recommend fencing and some tree planting in a situation like this so that uh, you know the, a certain degree of natural habitat would be restored. The picture on the right is a, quite a low gradient river which probably wouldn't have enough energy to bring about the same type of hydrological change. It's also very, very good quality in terms of its riparian area. There's a huge diversity of plants, there's shade, there's exposure. So this wouldn't be a river we would even consider doing a, a, a restoration program on. It's probably not as natural as it was the day that the glaciers retreated, but it's sufficiently good quality that we wouldn't consider uh, the necessity for a restoration program, whereas the one on the left is obviously very modified, very compromised in terms of its habitat quality. And that's one we would be considering moving into, given the various constraints that might arise in terms of land ownership, in terms of other protected sites and species in the areas. So when we just, when we do our rat survey, as I said before, we're ultimately we're measuring how far it's departed from its natural state. And again, this picture is a very obvious uh, recently drained channel where most of the substrate has been removed. You can see it piled up here on the bank. It's probably, it, it, it's a river that if it were fenced off and allowed to recover, it probably would. But we would also think it appropriate to put in some structures that would nudge the river in one way or another to begin that process probably a little bit more rapidly than it would ordinarily happen if we just fenced it off. Fencing off and leaving alone is probably the biggest long-term thing we will do here, but uh, it's, it's a river that probably could do with a little nudge, some structures to try and reintroduce a more natural flow regime. So here's just an example of part of a survey sheet, the various things we're measuring, the length of the reach, 
the width, depth, gradient, um, you know, the percentage of each of the different types of gradients that are there, the habitat types in a hydrological sense, the, the, the uh, in-stream vegetation that's already there and the riparian vegetation. What is its quality? What is it, how diverse is it? How natural is it? Um, we also will consider when we're, when we're assessing the suitability of a site for restoration, obviously the current land use, there may even be issues with the various individuals involved that they may not wish us to, to access the river through their land. Um, they could have concerns that maybe works that we do might exacerbate flooding issues, that kind of thing. But these are now, it's becoming a lot easier nowadays to negotiate with landowners because there's a much greater understanding out there of the need for habitat restoration. Um, access is obviously a, a, an issue. Uh, how easy is it going to be for us to get materials, machinery, that kind of thing, into a site to carry out our, our restoration work? And services, of course. Um, you know, we have to consider if there are overhead or underground services like uh, electrical cabling, uh, water supplies, that kind of thing. They're obviously going to be something that will need to be considered and avoided so that we don't do any damage to infrastructure. So here's a typical restoration or two typical restoration plans. They basically feature these uh, photo montages and just so that uh, whatever contractor or, or public servant is going to be doing the work has an understanding of how this is supposed to look when it's, when it's been completed. Then we'd also feature a map. And these two items that are presented on, on, on a plan would then be brought to an engineer and they provide what they call a CAD drawing. It's an engineering drawing basically with much more detail as to where each structure must go and what, what the other considerations will be. But I'd, I'd also point out, so these, these, this is a sketch of what's proposed in terms of restoring habitat in this river. But in both cases, you can see how unnaturally straight the river is. So it's, it's, it's even before you see the river itself, um, you can see how um, highly modified it is, how it's really just a, a flood channel or a, a way of conveying uh, water from the surrounding land. You can see the two very contrasting issues uh, on, on the different plans. In this one, it's a structural issue within the river itself. In this one, yes, there's structural issues as well, but the riverbanks are completely bare and the river has been very deeply incised, so there's no access to sort of natural material that would be on a riverbed normally. So this one is about fencing off. You can see there's this proposal to plant in a lot of places. Uh, there's random boulders proposed throughout this stretch, some gravel beds and some structures then to uh, introduce a sinew or sinuosity in, in the channel. You can see how artificially straight they both are. Um, these structures and these concepts are based on uh, the late Martin O'Grady, who, who wrote a book, uh, Channels and Challenges, and Karen Delante, who would have worked with him throughout that period. They both developed these techniques, and there was a huge amount of learning in that, uh, you know, 25 years of experience where they would try different structures, try different methods, uh, and sometimes they worked, sometimes they didn't. Usually there was, you know, a beneficial effect, but it's really the best of those beneficial effects that we've been looking for and looking to sort of reproduce 
on the channels that we're, we're working on now. And we have the benefit of that, those years of experience that Martin and Karen had brought us through. I had the, the benefit of working with Martin um, way back in the sort of late 90s. And it was a very pioneering time for this type of thing in Ireland. And we, we've come a pretty long way since then, even though a lot of the concepts and structures are still in use. We've tweaked those and fine-tuned them. Uh, and we have a probably slightly less interventional approach. Uh, you know, we're very happy to allow rivers to do their own thing if we can. But when we see rivers that are unlikely to sort of um, recover on their own, we, we, we introduce the, these structures as we see appropriate. This is a sort of an on-the-ground example of the type of work we're doing and what we hope to achieve. You can see here another artificially straightened channel. It's been deepened, but not beyond, uh, you know, what, what, what would have some access to natural materials. And you can see here, we've just introduced these deflectors down through it. This is sort of partway through the job, if you like, those, those deflectors were to be continued all the way down. And you can see here, we've, we've got what we would hope to achieve in terms of a talweg down more or less the center and the river will wind its way down through that now. It'll scour in some parts, it'll deposit in other parts, and it'll become a much more natural channel. But as I said in the beginning, we have to work within the constraints of the design channel, if you like. So the OPW have created this flood relief channel, and we then have to work within the constraints of that because we're not allowed to encroach on the land around it. Um, here, there's a lower gradient stretch where we, we, we considered it better to try and introduce some pools shallower areas and gravel. And we create pools by constricting the water with these paired deflectors and allowing the energy of that water to be dissipated downwards into the riverbed, creating a scour. And once the energy starts to dissipate, water slows down and there's a, a, an area at the back of this pool then, the downstream end of the pool, that will allow gravel to accumulate. So we have a sort of a spawning scenario there created and we will repeat this down through the channel. Over the years, these um, structures will probably become degraded and maybe break up a little and probably fall apart, but we will have already created that scour and the material that goes to make these up will still be part of the riverbed and it'll allow for the habitat heterogeneity. And uh, one of the things that we're sort of doing much more of now is we're trying to, wherever we can, bring in the riparian area as part of the overall river ecosystem and uh, planting trees in the riparian area is, is a big part of what we're, we're doing now. Um, it, trees aren't the only answer. We need to allow for a natural uh, sort of mix of vegetation along the riverbank, but trees have any number of beneficial uh, contrib contributions to make to river ecosystems. And in this day and age now where we, we've been finding, we have a, a fairly substantial program monitoring the effects of climate change on river channels and river habitats. And we've already found that there are a lot of rivers that are suffering from very, very high temperatures during, it, it may even only be brief periods during the summer, where they're completely exposed to sunlight for long periods every day. The, the, even the rocks in the river heat up and they become like radiators then. They hold the heat and they release it then even um, once the daylight hours have passed. And we're finding that in some stretches of river where there's very little bankside vegetation or shade 
um, that the, the temperature can be up to six degrees higher than shaded areas. And in those scenarios, we find that the fish are moving out of exposed areas, looking for areas where trees are providing a bit of shade, as you can see here, where, where the, the, the river will be considerably cooler and much more comfortable for them to live in. There's also the benefit of, of, of fish being much more secure in an area that's slightly darker and um, um, not as exposed to predators. So for, for many reasons, um, the planting of trees along a riverbank is, is a, considered to be a highly desirable thing to do. So we're, we're doing that in as many of these projects as we can. Um, you can see here an, another sort of argument, I suppose, for establishing a buffer zone or, or an area along the riverbank where there are trees and natural vegetation is the runoff that comes from the surrounding agricultural land. Uh, this picture, it, it, it's, it's probably a, a very extreme version of what we come across fairly regularly. But, uh, you know, the cattle in this field, it's a, they're, they're being overwintered in the field. They have completely free access to the river channel itself. And the runoff from the surrounding land is just continuously entering the watercourse. And there's nothing there to filter it out or prevent that direct runoff. So where, wherever we can, we're um, helping landowners to fence off watercourses not to allow animals to access it, to allow a, a proper vegetative buffer zone to become established. And this is done by the incorporation of the solar panel drinkers. So essentially the solar panel is connected to a pump. The pump then delivers water to a trough that's in the field and there's no need for the, um, the cattle to access directly into the watercourse. Um, this involves huge amount of community liaison, our officers on the ground. It's one of the first things they're looking for when they are walking these streams where they see a, a bank site is degraded or the cattle have direct access. They're approaching landowners, asking them, will they sort of work with them to uh, establish these buffer zones and protect the water course. Um, in terms of vegetation, just a very quick mention. What we're really looking for is a sort of mix uh, if there's too many trees, if, if, if we have this tunneling, which excludes light entirely, then um, you know, that can be problematic in itself. There's productivity issues, but um, the priority really would be any tree is better than no tree, if you like. Uh, so ideally what we'd hope to achieve is a mixed sward where you have grasses and flowering plants and that kind of thing, which are very important to biodiversity generally. But then you also have a mix of trees so that there is a certain amount of shade. The whole lot goes together to produce an aquatic buffer zone or ABZ as we call it. So the mix of tree cover and various grasses and flowering plants is the ideal scenario. And bank protection is one of the issues that was very extensively dealt with in the early part of these restoration projects. You know, when we first start to approach uh, drained channels and, and figure out ways of making them, making the habitat better uh, for, for all sorts of things, but mainly fish. Bank protection was considered to be one of the uh, key uh, elements that we could introduce. We have moved away from that now substantially because we found that, you know, the traditional ways of shoring up banks led to more problems down the line. 
So, for example, there was there was a, a number of different issues arose. Sometimes we were covering these kind of clay banks because they were eroding uh, with rock, rock armor or riprap, as we called it at the time. And there were other species that actually rely on these banks, like such as um, sand martens or kingfishers or, you know, species like that are species that rely on uh, the river delivering a certain amount of sediment, like lamprey. And that was being cut off to these species. The perception at the time was that if this sediment was freely allowed to get into the river, that it would clog up gravel beds. But we're not really as concerned about that now because sediment in a river is very much part of the natural hydrological process. But there are instances where bank protection is desirable or necessary. Even um, This particular job was done uh, where the river was beginning to encroach on a road and the road was about to collapse. So it was agreed generally between the various agencies that something needed to be done. And what was done in this instance was um, a sort of what we call a soft engineering solution, I suppose. These are all willow wands that were weaved uh, in and out along the riverbank. And then the willow itself was just left so that it started to sprout. One of the chief advantages of this is it, 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 is, it enhances biodiversity rather than sort of um, detracts from it. But it also means that when the river's in flood, the, a lot of the energy that is, is sort of coming around the outside of the bend, which is where the erosion would have been happening, it's being dissipated by all these multitude of stems. So the, 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 the energy of the river is being diverted in so many different directions and it's being dissipated. So that by the time it makes it to the next bend, it's moving more slowly. It's not causing exacerbated erosion further downstream. And that was one of the big problems with riprap. You'd have uh, the water uh, you know, at its maximum pace, being deflected by a hard surface and moving even faster then down into the next bend. So if we do approach, if we see that, that a, a bank protection job is necessary, we will be much more likely to adopt this approach rather than the riprap approach. The other big problem with riprap was Sometimes, so the energy might be speeded up going around the bend, but there will also be a certain amount of dissipation of that energy downwards. And it'll scour deeper and deeper into the riverbed until it eventually undermines the riprap. The riprap then collapses and you have the bank exposed again. And then you have a, a structures within the river, like the rocks that were the riprap, deflecting that water even harder into the eroding bank. So you've, you've maybe exacerbated the problem. So for all sorts of reasons, we tend not to go down the riprap route. And if we have to, we will try this soft engineering approach. And I mentioned earlier on protected sites and species and habitats. We need to consider those in every single case. Uh, so we, 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 we could be accused in the past of perhaps being a little bit myopic in terms of fish. We are an agency, after all, that looks after fish. but there are so many other species and habitats that rely on rivers as their habitat. And we must be cognizant of those. We can't do anything in a river that maybe advantages fish, but is a disadvantage to other species. So we, uh, we, we part of our process now was to assess the site, not just in terms of it as a habitat or how it might benefit fish. It's, it's got to be a more holistic biodiversity type approach so that all the species that are there that rely on it are considered.
it's been a very useful and interesting learning curve for us because now we're, we're engaging much more with the agencies that are responsible for looking after these species. And we're learning ourselves how best to approach river restoration um, so that all species benefit, not just fish. That has caused us to arrive <laughs> at this uh, juncture, I suppose. It, it, and it's, I mean, it, it, it's an extremely complex pro process, particularly if the site is part of an SAC or an SPA. But we now, whereas we were, would have regarded this as a, an obstacle in the past, we now welcome this idea that we have an opportunity in each project to engage with the competent authority that are protecting other aspects of the river habitat. And the more we work with them, the more we understand. And you can see here, there's lots of different sort of options for us. So if we, for example, have to work or consider it necessary to work on a stream that's within an SAC, the first thing we must do is screen it for appropriate assessment. And that then gives us a great insight into the other species that are there, how they use that habitat, what part they play in the overall ecosystem. Again, it's caused us to interact with the National Parks and Wildlife Service, for example, with the local authorities and with the OPW. And these interactions have, as I said, been a huge learning curve for us. So as I say, even though the process is more complicated, it is actually a welcome complication because it means it gives us the confidence to know that when we complete a restoration program, that everything is benefiting. We haven't impacted on one thing at the expense of the, or benefited fish at the expense of something else. Uh, that holistic approach can only really be achieved when we go through this process. So finally, just to sum up, our approach to river habitat restoration is to assess where and when interventions are appropriate. If nature's going to do it anyway, we walk away. If it's in a state that where we feel we can't really make it any better, we walk away. There are maybe one or two other instances where the, you know, the sensitivity of a stream in the context of a protected site is such that we, we, we may just not be able to, for example, if the working in a river might have an impact on freshwater pearl mussel, which are highly sensitive and must be protected as a priority, then maybe we'll just walk away from those kind of uh, scenarios as well. We have to consider all species and habitats before we move in and try and restore a river. And um, we, we, we need to try and add suitable material where sources of that material have been cut off due to the nature of the drainage scheme or whatever it was that damaged that habitat in the first place. We, what we really want to do is restore as best we can, allow the river to start uh, behaving in a natural way so it will be part of that restoration process. But then once that program is finished, we must protect. We must fence off wherever possible or wherever appropriate and allow the river to do its thing within the, the confines of that new fencing barrier that we've put up. Um, but the, the ongoing protection of the work that we do is a critical part of this process. And then we want to monitor, just find out going forward, is what we're doing working? Is it appropriate to the particular channel that we've 
done this project in. And if not, then we'll know better in the future um, where we maybe went wrong in some projects or where we could have made them better. So the monitoring again is another critical element of this process. So that's it from me. I hope you enjoyed the presentation and I'm more than happy to uh, answer any questions or queries if anybody has them. Thank you. Thank you very much, Declan, and thank you to everybody for joining. There's um, an opportunity to type in any questions there in the Q&A at the bottom of the screen if anybody wants to. And there's just one question in at the moment, Declan. It says, you mentioned about it being easier to get land owner, owner position to do work, permission to do work. Do you think um, it's easy to convince where work cannot be done? Um, or do you have any tips on how to convince where work cannot be done? Um, for example, with the Tidy Town Group. Oh, yes. I, OK, I understand that. Um, I, I suppose it's a relatively new thing because public engagement with this process is a relatively new thing. I mean, we, we've certainly I have experience of working with tidy towns. And in fact, uh, you know, there's there are requests coming into us from time to time from tidy towns uh, to sort of improve their local river. Now, in a lot of cases, the river, it doesn't need improvement from a habitat perspective, but maybe it doesn't look as good or it isn't as, as popular an amenity as it might be. So it's probably more appropriate to go down the route of river enhancement or habitat enhancement through a different agency, like the local authority, for example. And they might create walkways or plant, you know, trees, plant, you know, flowers or whatever along a river. But convincing a, a, a local group that um, this type of habitat restoration is not appropriate for the channel they have in mind, it's not so hard. No, I mean, we, we haven't really had problems. So long as we have alternative suggestions for them. Um, now, I, 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 there's a river in particular that I was asked to look at, and the habitat in stream, the conditions, the water quality in that were really quite good. But uh, there was a problem with the local community who wanted to sort of, they wanted access to the river, I suppose. And um, they are popular amenities, even just for walking along, looking at, you know, receiving some sort of feedback from nature, if you like. And uh, that, that's about access to the river. It's about uh, developing walkways, enhancing the river bank so that it looks nicer and is probably more meaningful to biodiversity. But in this particular instance, there was no physical works that I would have thought were necessary or appropriate for that river. So, but we, we, didn't, we don't seem to have had a problem convincing the local community of that because we were able to offer them an explanation as to why we wouldn't think it's appropriate to go in and uh, also an alternative that they could maybe deal with their local authority to make uh, almost like a, a parkland situation along by the river. Perfect. Um, another question. If you would like an area of river considered for habitat restoration, who can you contact? I'll contact us. The project's office within um, IFI. Okay. Um, I, you, you probably have a, a number there or something there, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we, we have a number of, of projects that come to us every year from, it's very often it's angling clubs, but sometimes it's landowners, sometimes it's community groups, and they, they see the river as being degraded. And our job really is to go out, assess, see, see 
whether or not our methodologies could help, could, could create a, a better habitat for fish and other um, river species. Okay, this yeah. is another... office and, uh, you know, come to us with a proposal that, you, you, you know, there's a stretch of river that you think could do it work. Okay, we'll another one in here, Declan, it's from a landowner. Um, I've been restricting legacy cattle access on my farm and monitoring the water quality since March 2020. I've probably used the leave alone approach, just fencing off and installing buffer zones. But I wish I had other methods I could adopt or hope to learn in IFI. My buffer zone is probably two metres at the lower stream on the farm, for instance. Could I extend this or plant vegetation and what type works on riparian zones? Well, that's great. Um, delighted to hear it. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you could, if you were prepared to uh, um, allow for more than two metres, the bigger, the better. You know, a river will thrive the more natural uh, the, the, the buffer zone. And a lot of the time it's about leaving buffer zone alone. If there's no trees at all, it'll take a long time for trees to seed into it. So, yes, you could definitely consider planting. There is um, a riparian measure within the Native Woodland Scheme. This is the Forest Service have a scheme called the Native Woodland Scheme. And the riparian measure allows for diffuse planting of natural species along the bank. So you have that mix of grasses and flowering plants and trees. So you get all the benefits of all the different plant types um, and you, you would get a premium for that. It's, it's a, like a forestry grant or whatever. Um, so you would need to contact your local forest service inspector and ask if he would think it's appropriate to bring that uh, riparian buffer zone into the native woodland scheme. There is a minimum uh, hectareage which they will accept. Um, so it depends on what length of stream you have and what width of, of a buffer zone you're prepared to allow. But definitely there are options there, particularly now. I know Chagask are very keen to encourage um, landowners to, to maximise their aquatic buffer zone as well and plant trees in it. So between Chagask and the Forest Service, you know, there may be options there that will result in you not losing out if you like, in terms of, uh, you know, your, your single farm payment and various grants you might be getting. OK, um, there's another question. I'm going to break it into two. Um, how reliant are works on landowner cooperation? If a river or surrounding land is being used in a way that is detrimental to ecology or hydrology, is this still dependent on cooperation? Yes, I suppose it is um, to an extent. Like under the good agricultural and environmental uh, conditions. Farmers are supposed to uh, allow an aquatic buffer zone, but in a lot of cases, it, it, they're just not really that conscious of, of, of this particular element, and they're not really being told about it enough. So yes, there are areas where, you know, the use of the land is impacting on the ecology of the river. Um, it's an issue that I think people would need to really address through their local agricultural inspectors or Chagask because they will advise on what you have to do. We're finding we get a lot of applications now from landowners who have been told recently that they need to fence off a water course, particularly if they're availing of the nitrates uh, derogation. Uh, you know, there's an obligation to, to fence off water courses in, in a lot of those instances. So, and they haven't. 
and maybe they're looking for a grant to see if they can avoid having to pay for it themselves. We're happy to throw money at it if we have it, but in a lot of instances, we need to prioritize whatever money we have to sort of uh, physical works and, and, and uh, you know, restoration projects. The fencing off, if it's something that um, a landowner is going to be obliged to do, we normally leave them to do it themselves. Uh, but we can help. I mean, I'm not saying we, you know, if, if it, it's something we all want to see and, uh, you know, landowners want to see it as well. So if we can help, we will. But it's probably more appropriate to go down the route of, um, you know, talking to your local agricultural advisor and seeing what grants might be available to, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the aquatic buffer zone really is the big, the big thing nowadays, you know, to try and protect watercourses. Okay, the next two questions are in relation to drainage. Um, the first one is how successful were drainage schemes in meeting their own aims? Um, are there mutually beneficial aspects to this work for land use and habitat? And is there education for these for landowners? Uh, that's a big question. I, I, I personally don't believe that the, well, they, they succeeded in drying out land in a lot of places um, but the sacrifice really I suppose was that you know watercourses in most of these instances were very badly damaged and you know their productivity would have been severely limited so while on the one hand they achieved what they set out to achieve in on a local basis uh, a lot of habitat damage was done and we're, we're, we're trying to partially address that now but one of the big problems with these drainage schemes would have been if, for example, the Shannon is the classic example of it now. So most of the main tributaries on the Shannon were drained right up to the smallest streams and, and land drains and stuff. So they're delivering water from the land like they were supposed to in, 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 as quickly as possible. But because the Shannon itself was never drained, all this water is coming rapidly down into the main Shannon basin and it has nowhere to go. And it's causing huge flooding in other parts of the Shannon catchment. And unfortunately, those drainage schemes, they keep going. The maintenance keeps going. There doesn't seem to have been a general acknowledgement that, you know, what's benefiting one local area is causing problems in another area. And there are alternatives, but they're not as simple and they're not as uh, widely accepted. So, for example, the idea that you allow certain lands to flood. So when you get a, this big inundation within a part of a catchment, um, rather than getting it all out of there and causing problems downstream, you allow certain low-lying areas to take the worst, the, the peak out of that flood, if you like, let the land flood, slow down the flows so that they're delivered in a more gradual way to the bigger parts of the catchment downstream and they don't cause the same level of flooding. There's a lot of work going on in, in parts of the UK now to do with um, the, the sort of planting of protective forests, they call them. So land that isn't being intensively used for agriculture. If it's somewhere in the catchment that can provide this flood relief service to the community, they're actually planting them with trees and allowing them deliberately to flood when you get these peak flows. And they're taking the sting out of a lot of these floods downstream. It's something I'd love to see rolled out in Ireland more, but we're currently where we're at is, you know, um, 
we, we have the legacy of these drainage schemes. They are being maintained. There's a statutory obligation in, within the OPW to maintain the schemes that they originally did in the 40s and 50s and 60s. So we're not there yet. We're, we're a good way off. But uh, I know that the, the, there is a lot of interest in this in the cutaway bogs in the Midlands um, because they're not being used anymore by Bordnemona. There's a lot of consideration being given to whether or not we can link these up to watercourses within catchments and, and use them then as flood attenuation kind of areas. Okay, um, we'll just take the last question now. Um, the last question is, at what level of tunnelling would you consider actions to take place? It, it, it would depend really on the width of the channel, the orientation of the channel. So if it's north-south, it would only be getting sunlight for those few hours a day as the sun is sort of passing over that axis. But if it's an east-west kind of a, an, an axis or thereabouts, it would be potentially getting sunlight all day long. So we would consider the orientation of the channel, the width of the channel, the type of channel that it is, um, and probably then see if there were other species in the area that require, um, a, you know, for example, kingfishers, um, they need low-hanging branches to perch on and feed off and that kind of thing. So yes, we would consider going in and pruning if, if a channel is very heavily overgrown, but we would be very careful in the level of pruning that we would do. We'd rather see it done by hand, if at all possible, than by machines dragging trees out from up on the bank, because that, that's going to sort of damage the integrity of the bank and possibly lead to instability within the catchment. Um, but yeah, it, it, it would be, if it's not entirely tunneled, um, we would normally, we wouldn't intervene unless there was some other good reason to. Okay, we leave it at that, Declan. Um, just to say thanks to everybody again for joining. Um, there's a lot of interest in this and I see from the questions coming in, there's a lot of interest to learn more. So if anybody wants to pop an email, you know, on what they'd like covered, maybe in detail, there seems to be a lot of interest in the actual um, physical works themselves and the methods. So maybe another discussion on that might be worth it. So. Um, that's in. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, okay, everybody. thanks, everybody. You've been listening to a bonus episode from Ireland on the Fly with the IFI's Declan Cook giving a webinar on habit restoration in Irish rivers as part of World Environment Day. Don't forget to rate, review, and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Plus, you can keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram. And myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. Mayfly is up and the excitement is palpable. Wherever you are in Ireland, the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with Mayfly soon. And to help you improve your catch rate this season, we've used a Mayfly Tactics Masterclass with international angler, guide and renowned tire, Jackie Mahan. If you want to learn about setup, tactics, conditions and flies, then head over to www.irelandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass where you can find out all the details to access the recording and Jackie's notes. If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you.